Quantum Feedback Loop podcast. I'm your host, James Myers, and I also publish The Quantum Record. I was so encouraged to learn from Order of Canada recipient Dr. John Mighton about the great strides that his Jump Math charity is making in unlocking students' mathematical potential for our technological future. Jump, which stands for Junior Undiscovered Math Prodigies, is a charity whose learning resources and mathematics are used by hundreds of thousands of students and teachers. So math is an essential skill in a technological world, particularly in understanding probabilities and risks. And you'll hear in our discussion how Jump Math uses a unique approach to engage students, making math learning a positive experience, and the results speak for themselves. Following two degrees in the study of philosophy, John obtained his PhD in mathematics and has also taught in mathematics. In 2002, he found a jump, and he's the author of All Things Being Equal. John's also an award-winning playwright, and I had a chance at the end to discuss with him the relationship between mathematics and creative pursuits like playwriting. His response and the entire discussion points to how it's entirely possible for creative people to expand the mathematical parts of their minds, and it's equally likely that the mathematically-minded can use knowledge of numbers to explore their creative sides. Who knows, maybe there's a common ground in the middle where reason has no inherent limit? So John's is an encouraging vision for the future, especially for someone like me whose high school experience instilled a fear of math for many years. We need not limit ourselves one way or the other. That's John's message. It's so easy to close the gap, John says, and it's a message that resonates with me as much as it may for you too. The way I think of them, limits are for the physical world. They're countable and every single one, except for the very first, is paired with its predecessor. Do limits like that exist in our heads, or does the potential of our thinking transcend all of that? For a long time, I'll be thinking about the logic of John's statement near the end of our talk when he said, we don't even know what we're wishing for when we wish to be immortal. So at least as I imagine it, a continuously infinite wish like immortality would require simultaneous knowledge of cause and effect, but not a single one of us will ever have the time to make those two spiraling ends meet. It's the uncertain present that always stands in the way to differentiate the past and the future, and it's now in the present that math can open many bright paths to tomorrow, and this is what John tells us. So before I begin, a brief word about the sound quality in this recording. John's microphone wasn't as forgiving as I had hoped, and so we've adjusted sound levels as best we could to make his words as loud and as clear as we can. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Welcome, John, to the Quantum Feedback Loop podcast. I'm very much looking forward to learning about your experience with learning and teaching math, and also the mission of Jump Math, the Jump Math charity that you founded to help students and teachers to unlock their mathematical potential. Thank you. So maybe we could just start with your own background, and I understand your BA and MA degrees were in philosophy, and you've spoken about your early relationship with math as being one that was full of anxiety, I guess, to the point that you nearly failed a university course. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could take us back to, I think it was when you were 30 years old, when you had this initiative and inspiration to pursue a PhD in math. And maybe if you could just explain what gave rise to that. Maybe there's hope for those of us older than that age to do that still. But also, you know, just what gave you that inspiration and then what led to the founding of Jump Math? Well, there's definitely hope for everybody because as we'll probably talk about, you know, there's all kinds of evidence now that math should be accessible to almost every brain. It took me till age 30 to figure that out. One of the things that led me there after I graduated from university, and I got the lowest mark in my creative writing class, I read Sylvia Plath's letters to her mother, and it was clear, she's an American poet, it was clear that she trained herself to be a writer. She'd write imitations of poems, she's memorized poems. And that was um, a surprise to me that you could actually follow a path to train yourself to do something. Up till then, I thought you kind of had to be born with a gift to do something. And so I learned as a writer that, that I could improve through practice. And in my late 20s, so I don't think I would have ever gone into math if I hadn't learned that. And then my late 20s, I was uh, reading a lot of science for my plays and was frustrated because I couldn't understand the math. I also helped someone who was going to go into medical school with a bit of calculus, and then I reviewed the calculus way easier than I remembered. Then I started tutoring to make a bit of money as a playwright, like at a very low level, grade six. By working my way back through the middle school and then high school with the students, um, things that were totally mysterious to me in high school became clear. 
And that gave me the confidence to finally go back into math, because by that point I was fascinated with mathematics. Interesting. And so from the point that you started this education in, in mathematics, how long did it take you to get your PhD and to actually start teaching yourself? About 10 years, because I had to go back and I had no math courses. So I had to go back and do all the undergraduate math courses, then my master's and then, then my PhD with a thesis. So it took about 10 years. Wow. That's dedication. Yeah. Dedication well, I, you know, I was part-time because I was writing at the time. Also, and, um, and in my final years of my doctorate, I started, I found a jump as, as a kind of tutoring club at first to help kids who are struggling. And I want to talk about your playwriting later, because that's another great career that you have. But maybe just to talk about jump math to start off with, could you just kind of outline its general approach to math? What makes it different? Tell us a little bit about how you get schools involved in it. Yeah, I think it's um, there's a couple of things that appear to be different. You know, we've reviewed a lot of programs. We've been in a lot of schools. And I kind of have an elevator speech now. Uh, people are aware now there's a science of reading. There's a lot of debate now. Um, some states in the U.S. are even requiring that schools be aligned with the science of reading. And it became apparent that young kids need phonics and decoding. Um, they can't just infer meaning from pictures and things like that. And that's been known for years. There's a massive body of evidence, but somehow that message never got to the school system. It's even worse than math because I don't think many people are actually aware of the research on the science of learning math. So I'll give you two examples. Um, every program we've ever come across is based on the idea that kids will learn to be great problem solvers by engaging with a lot of complex, real-world, authentic problems, rich problems. It's hard to even argue against that because the opposite would be a poor problem or an inauthentic problem. So everyone's been seduced by that. And certainly that's the goal and jump is to get kids solving those problems. But is that necessarily the best path you should take to get them to be proficient or great at that? So there's an article in Science Magazine that came out 15 years ago, and the title is The Advantage of Abstract Examples in Math Instruction. Uh, right in science magazine. And it's just like the reading research that people have ignored. Turns out right down to preschool level, up to university level, there's research suggesting that to become a great problem solver, it's often better to have a more abstract and be introduced to a problem more abstractly where you take away the irrelevant details, you show them the deep structure of the problem, which can be a number line, grid or whatever, and you gradually introduce language and complexity and applications. So we believe that's far more efficient in most cases. There's also research on concreteness fading. Even if kids benefit from the concrete representations, it's good to fade to abstract quickly. So that's one thing that people seem not to be aware of. Another is there's an article in Nature Communications that came out four years ago. The title is The 85% Rule for Optimal Learning. There's a massive body of research suggesting that we learn most efficiently and we're most engaged when we're about 85% proficient at something. We've almost got it. Not quite. It's also called the Goldilocks zone. You know, not too hot, not too cold. Not too hard, not too easy. That's the perfect zone. But from what I've seen in schools, most kids spend their time around 25% to 50% in the, at proficient, which is a terrible zone for learning. And then if you ignore those principles, you're going to create hierarchies in the classroom. You're going to convince kids that they, you know, that they can't get better through practice. Even you can tell them about mindsets and have a positive mindset, but then you show them they can't get better through practice. So I think jump is different because we were in the trenches. Like we're not a traditional developer. If we write a lesson, we have to go in and deliver it or do demos. You know, it's often in very difficult circumstances. If it doesn't work, we have to, you know, we have to stand by those lessons. And I think we stumbled on these principles and realized about efficient lesson design because we were out actually having to go in and teach these lessons for large classrooms. And so I think that JUMP is very different in its alignment science and in the ability to close the gap between students and make them all feel that they can do math. So I'm sorry it's a long answer, but if you don't start with the science, like it's almost impossible to say what we should be doing in math instruction. And that's really interesting. And as I was reading your book, All Things Being Equal, I 
caught onto a number of things that you said. I guess when you just were saying talking about proficiency, is that sort of like the idea of you know having enough practice that certain basic things are just kind of second nature to yeah. you? I, I think you talked about the multiplication tables. And, you know, that's one thing that I remember having to learn as a young student and it seemed dry. And but now in my professional career as an accountant, I'm glad that I can just mentally very quickly do that. So I'm not burdened by that basic function that I can go on to, you know, greater functions. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, I think there's two issues there. One is the research on deliberate practice, how we get good at things show that you have to automatize certain skills before you can work at a high level or work conceptually. So if you don't know any tables or addition facts, so you'll never see patterns, you'll never be able to generalize or make estimates. You'll you'll never even understand the rules because you won't see the connections between the numbers. It's not just a rote thing of memorizing. And also we've shown you can learn your tables in really fun ways. Kids can discover patterns in the tables that help them remember. But there's no substitute for knowing these things deeply and having them automatic. So that's one body of research. And, and it's just a vast amount of research. Like no one should be arguing these things unless you want to say like the earth is flat. Uh, if you want to have those kind of arguments. Second, um, it's a kind of deeper issue. There's a, there's a famous study that Daniel Willingham writes about in his book, Why Don't Students Like School? Where they asked college kids to classify physics problems according to which ones look similar. The, undergrads looked at very superficial features of the problems. They'd say, oh, these are all about springs or inclined planes. The graduate students saw the deeper structure underneath. Like they would say, these look different, but they're all about conservation of energy. Um, those are called mental representations. Chess players can just look at a position and see. They're not going to waste their time thinking about that position. They appear to be brilliant, not because their brains are any better, they're not even better at seeing patterns. If you put a random pattern on the board, they're not better than the average person. It's because they can see chess patterns because they have that automaticity and those deep mental representations. People completely ignore that in math education. They think, oh, kids are just going to become great problem solvers by grappling with very little guidance or systems with these real world authentic problems. The cognitive scientists are going crazy. Like they're, they're saying, why not look at the actual research on how people learn? It, that's not how you, you become good at things. It's through guided guided practice. It, it's still deeply conceptual, but you have to give kids some guidance to develop those mental representations and to develop that fluency. And you have some great examples in All Things Being Equal of some kids who were really, really challenged. Uh, I'm trying to remember her name. Was it Lisa? One girl that, uh, you know, just was such, at such a low yeah. level. And, and then all of a sudden, I think when introduced to the you know, maybe those abstractions is what got her up to a high level? Yeah. With her, she was um, in grade six testing at grade one level, and she was assessed as having an IQ of 70. Like, I, I thought she was unteachable when I first met her. She was so nervous. She was terrified. And I just had to break things into very simple challenges, let her succeed, let her start to see those patterns and connections. And... um Three years later, after only three years of tutoring, she went into academic grade nine math, having taught in grade one, and she skipped year and finished academic grade 10. That kind of changed the course of my life because when I started seeing those results with kids, it literally seemed to rewire her brain or, or whatever potential she had in listening. That's why I started to build Jump. I, I never thought I would build a charity. I'm not a writer or mathematician, but seeing what math could do for these kids and their self-esteem and their belief in themselves as learners. I could have, you know, founded a charity to teach creative writing, but mathematics, it's so easy to close the gap, to catch kids up, to get whole classrooms doing roughly the same thing. And then you get this group energy that comes when all kids are experiencing a sense of mastery or awe or purpose together that's hard to produce in other subjects. Interesting. Yeah, that group energy certainly could have been useful, I think, in some of my early math learning. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted to just ask about the abstractions. Is it the idea of teaching students maybe to see the first principles and maybe less of the, you know, remembering the formulas? But if you think of the first principles, you can kind of work it out from there. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of issues there, too. It's kind of it's complicated. But I saw a study recently with preschool kids with analogies. You don't want to use fuzzy teddy bears and stuff with all these distractors, just simple triangles. 
that maybe grow larger or whatever better. Um, so that's one thing. You want to remove all the distractors sometimes so, so the kids can actually see the structure. But also, like in grade three and four, kids struggle with part whole problems. You might have 10 marbles, seven green. How many are blue? Um, there you'd have the total and the part. But kids often get answers that are bigger than the total because they, they see the word more and they think that's going to mean add. But and, and teachers will say, underline all the key words, but more could mean subtract, depending on who has more. So rather than starting with dense word problems and shifting applications, we just give kids little grids, 10 squares and 10 squares parallel to each other. And we might say five green marbles, three blue marbles. Just draw a picture of that shading in the squares. So they're just shading in squares. And then they've got little bars and they can see the difference in the lengths and they can see the total. And we'd start with easy problems like where we give them the two parts. Like they might always be green and blue marbles so they don't have to read much. And then the teacher is still leading, we call it structured inquiry, it still leads through questions. The kids are figuring everything out. They're doing the thinking. So the teacher would say, okay, you did the five green, three blue. What if I told you the total? You've got 10 marbles and seven green. Can you draw a picture? So they can draw one and then count on to find the other. And, and they work through all those problem types. You might have fewer or less uh, with very little language and using those, those models. And then we give them, we let them switch between the different types by, by saying, we give them charts with green, blue, total, and difference. We give them two pieces of information, they have to draw the picture. And so they learn to switch between the problem types and identify them as a part whole before they touch a word problem. Because the minute they hit the word problems, they could easily give up. They could forget everything they learned because they're in a panic because they can't read a word. So... Eventually, though, you, you, you gradually get them up to full word problems and multi-step complex word problems. So this is an empirical claim. Try that as opposed to having them read many, many word problems and underlying keywords. Where do you think you'll have more efficiency? Where, where do you think more kids will learn? Where can you reduce the hierarchies in the classroom? Because everyone's starting from the same starting point. They don't even have to have great number sense at first because they're just drawing pictures. So you've equalized the playing field. So not only is it cognitively efficient, it's psychologically efficient. You've reduced the hierarchies in the classroom. So I can't even tell you. what. Uh, so I do a lot of demo lessons where I'll walk into a class. I've never met them in my life. Generally, I can get the kids pretty excited as a group. It's because of that. I'll start. I'll try and find a starting point for every student. As soon as the weaker kids in that class start showing off and coming up to answer questions, they suddenly wake up like they're actually starting to move. They're working at the same rate as the other students. And if you've scaffolded the lesson, there's no barriers to them. So that's, it's quite simple. It's like uh, we, we ask teachers, if you were tutoring a kid who's three years behind, what would you do? If it's just one kid, they say, we go back to that level. We'd scaffold, we break the challenges and the steps. We give lots of practice and encouragement. We give them bonus questions. Well, it turns out you can do that for entire classrooms if you have good lessons. That's what no one would believe. Like the, it's just unbelievable to people that you could actually level the playing field within a lesson or two in math. That's really interesting. And, and I know you've written about the excess of words in some math texts. And I guess that could be a real barrier for students who have trouble with words, but maybe, as you say, not as much trouble picturing the structures. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think we constantly mistake the end where we want to get kids to, to the means to get there. So we want them to be able to solve these complex word problems. Um, but if you start with very little guidance with the complex word problems and the context always changing, the type of problem, it's just impossible cognitively for the vast majority of kids. And then you're creating hierarchies in the classroom, which makes it even more impossible because as soon as a kid decides they're not in a talent group, they just give up or they'll start distracting the class. You know, so it's just, I hope we'll look back on our time as a kind of dark age when we have all this science and all this understanding of how kids learn and we insist on teaching in the most inefficient ways possible because some, you know, famous math consultants have convinced people this is the way to do it. Um, that's why we engage in so many studies and experiments in jump, including two randomized controlled trials, because you have to test your ideas to see if they actually work or are aligned with the science. And so how much of jump mass work involves that testing and developing uh, versus perhaps supporting 
the numbers of schools that are involved. Maybe you could tell us just how many schools are involved and, and are they worldwide? Yeah, so in Canada, I think about 6% of kids are using, K-8 to are using the program as a classroom program. Um, in Alberta, we the province just licensed some of our resources for the province. Um, so we're, we've kind of been in stealth mode. Well, for five years, we were tutoring a you know, organization. Then, then we started developing the classroom program. It, it, it took us a long time to develop and test that, and we're constantly improving it. But now uh, we're starting to get whole district adoptions. The, the, as, as I said, the province is now sort of licensed program. So we're, our reach is really growing now. We're coming out of stealth mood. Um, but much of most of our resources, at least the first 15 years, went into testing and developing the program and constantly trying to improve it. Now we're shifting more to supporting schools, supporting parents, continuing to do more research. We're now doing pilots in districts where we ask schools to volunteer because when teachers follow these principles, you get great data very quickly. And so we sometimes go into a district and start with a small group of schools that really want to try it and give teachers enough support. So we might do demo lessons for them or and give them enough professional development to, to really make sure they're getting the best of resources. And so, yeah, I think that's important is that you're supporting not just the students, but the teachers as well. Maybe just to give us an idea of, you know, maybe one significantly different approach that Jump would use both from a teaching perspective and from a student perspective, just so that we can get our minds around how it looks maybe differently from the way we learned math. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. There's a really hard topic for elementary kids when you have to divide a single digit number into a multi-digit number. Like so many people use long division, some different forms of that. And I've seen some research suggesting it's one of the hardest topics because there's so many different skills and concepts involved. And, and it's actually quite a strong predictor of success of high school. So why is it no one understands long division? Uh, when it's, you know, we have a video of me teaching it to grade four class where 100% of the kids understood it, could explain it within an hour. Um, so, you know, suppose you've got three divided into 72. You could say to the kids, well, why don't you figure it out as if it was three friends want to share seven dimes and two pennies. So, you know, you've got 72 cents. It's, you'd have to tell, remind kids what pennies were, but you've got three divided into 72 would be seven dimes, two pennies. You want to share them among three friends. You could say, well, just draw a picture. Use circles for the friends and write E for dime. So you'd have, you draw three circles because there's three friends and you got seven dimes. You're going to have to put one in that's one dime into each circle at a time. And hopefully you can visualize this. Each friend would get two dimes because there'd be three circles and there'd be one left over. And the only trouble I've ever seen kids have is what to do with that extra dime. But, you know, any kid can do that. That's why I was able to teach it to grade four kids. Then you say to the kids, well, I've seen high school kids trying to do long division and they don't know what any of the numbers mean. You're going to figure it out yourself. So if you imagine three divided into 72, when you divide three into seven, you get a two and you put it up on top of the seven. We say to the kids, where do you see that two in your picture? And they say, oh, every friend got two dimes. And then why do you multiply the two times the three and get six? They say, well, because you gave away six dimes. Three friends each getting two dimes, that's six. What's the one when you subtract? That's the one left over. Like the kids tell you what everything means in the algebra. Even the bring down step, I don't have time to talk about it, but you even play a game where you, you say there's still a dime left and two pennies and you give it out to the kids as if you shared it equally. And the kids say, that's not fair. You have to change the dime into pennies. And the kids figure that out themselves. They figure out how to share the money equally. And the bring down step is when you bring the number down, you're just changing the dime into pennies. Like the kids figure all that out. So how come in an hour I can teach an entire classroom uh, from first principles? how to do long division and what it means. And almost no one in the population understands it. If they can do it, they certainly can't explain it. They just memorize a set of rules. That just shows how ignorant we are as a species that we've let that happen. 
things that should be accessible to every brain are just complete mysteries. And the consequences of that are just disastrous for us, for the planet, for for anything that involves risk or probabilities. We, we can't even think our way through these problems because, mm. because we've turned a subject that's beautiful. It should be a gift to everyone that kids love when they can do it without fear of failure. We've turned it into this just inaccessible mystery. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, that mass misunderstanding of risk and probabilities, yeah. I think that's, and I wanted to delve into that a little bit more because I mean, this is, we're surrounded by statistics and we're surrounded yeah. by experts with opinions on statistics. And and then our technology is advancing to the point where it's producing great arrays of information. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, especially in a technological world such as we are in now, it seems that there is, as you say, a, a great danger of not yeah. understanding these. In terms of especially for a technological future and with new technologies like quantum computing coming online, which is intensely mathematical and geometric at the same time, I guess we're not preparing people the best way, like adults or children. We're not even prepared to solve the problems we created 30 years ago, like with like climate change, for instance. Uh, so we're certainly not prepared for anything that's coming. And or COVID when people didn't understand exponential growth and how quickly things could spread. You know, and that the purpose of vaccines, for instance, wasn't, I, I don't want to go get a vaccine. There's probably risks. But you balance that against the number of people who are going to die, including your grandmother, because the hospitals are too full. The reason for the vaccines is not to cure everyone. It's to slow down the rate of transmission. Like people had no clue because they don't understand exponential growth. Um, so we're in real danger and but the good news is that it wouldn't be hard to fix this problem so i'll give you one example from the book suppose you have a cancer test that's 90 percent accurate like if you if you have cancer it's going to tell you with 90 percent probability researchers ask doctors suppose you get back this result what are your odds of having cancer the estimates range from like 1% to 90%. That's quite a range when you're telling someone whether they're going to die or not, certainly. Um, and the problem was that if you have cancer and you get that test, it's accurate. But what if you don't have cancer? Sometimes it will give you a false result. You may not. And so, and if it's accurate, 90%, that means 10% is giving you a false result. But there's way more people who don't have cancer. So you have to take account of those people. You have to look at what if you didn't have cancer and you have to add up those two situations to get the real probability, which is way lower than 90%. So if a doctor understood that, like don't ignore the people who don't have cancer and factor them in when you're calculating the probability. It's simple. You can teach grade six kids to do that, to parse any situation and, and see what they should be adding up. If people had basic training in probability, they wouldn't make those mistakes. And same with basic training statistics in just basic calculations, they wouldn't, they'd be much less at risk. So it's not an insurmountable problem. I think obviously Jump Math is offering hope. The examples you gave with the COVID vaccines and climate change are you know, particularly powerful examples yeah. and very, yeah. very recent and close to mind. And, you know, it'd be nice if there was some way we could just change this whole narrative and so people would ask you know more about this and yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is globally what what well, we do with it but well i i think it goes back so i'm a really progressive person but i think progressives have done some damage with this idea that oh you don't want to guide kids too much you don't want to lay in those foundations because that will interfere with their creativity if you're an artist or scientist you know that's wrong that actually your creativity comes out of that training. Um, so I think we've done a lot of damage to kids and, and it's much broader than people realize because when you have kids who are continually struggling with math, they begin, I think, to develop a hatred of the subject, of science, uh, they, they don't like authority. I think we have a very anti-intellectual, frustrated, angry society now 
partly because of people's experience at school and because also because they can't think through some of these problems, they're easily misled and their anger is stoked quite often through false claims and so on. So if you look at climate change, for instance, even like everyone in North America would probably prefer to go to a certified car mechanic than asking a politician whether they, their brakes are going to fail and whether they should put their family in that car. They would go to a mechanic. So we have that respect for science. But when 90% of credible scientists are saying it's highly likely we're causing climate change, people just don't have any respect. And I think it's connected to their experience with math and science. They don't they don't really respect the power and the importance of math and science deeply enough to, to have that trust across the board. And the second mistake you make is that doesn't mean those climate scientists are saying it's certain we're causing climate change. And so all these people say, oh, you don't know that for sure, so I'm not going to do anything. But if they said it's 90% probable your brakes are going to fail, you would not put your kids in that car. It's a, it's a probability. If you agree that the science is right and that there is a risk, you would mitigate it. So that's the mystery to me. Like, how can people look at this evidence and not, they don't have to be certain to act. They just have to try. If something's a risk, you've got to try and make sure you're guarding against it. I read something, I guess, and maybe it's just my own experience too, but I think when people deal with large numbers, like great yeah. populations, you know, as opposed to just, you know, their neighbors, for example, you know, so if you, yeah. if you gave them a probability involving five neighbors, they would understand yeah. the consequences yeah. of that. Whereas probabilities involving 7.8 billion humans, it's just like, it can't compute. Yeah. I think that goes back to the sense of powerlessness we have beyond, like, if we can see it immediately, we understand with our neighbors, what the math is. The math isn't any different for bigger numbers, but we've kind of reached our limit and we just shut down because we have the sense of helplessness about math. So how does a mathematical mind approach probabilities, risks, and patterns in the everyday world to produce a better outcome? I mean, what's the first starting point, you know, versus, you know, for a mathematical mind versus somebody who's not thinking that way? Well, you know, when you learn math, you learn how to do proofs. And when you do proofs, you have to look at every possibility. You can't forget anything or your proof is is unsound. Like if you if you haven't covered every possibility. So that's great training for people when you're listening to an argument or you're you're debating some course of action. You've got to constantly be trying to understand if you've uh, taken account of every possibility, every bit of data. So that goes back to that example I just gave you with the cancer test. You have to not just be counting up the people who have cancer and looking at the effect of the test. You have to look at the part of the population that doesn't have cancer and know that you have to factor that into your probability. That's what reduces the probabilities that the test is, is that you're actually going to die if it says you have cancer. Because so many people get false positives. So, so that, you know, if doctors are trained in that, not just a bunch of rules, memorizing a bunch of rules, but how to think through these things, they would immediately know how to uh, assess what you should be counting, what you should be taking account of with one of these problems. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big benefits from math training. Also, just the ability to estimate, to make ballpark estimates, to kind of see if data makes sense. And then um, as a writer and a mathematician, like people think those are very different fields. The one difference is that if I get something in math and all my peers agree with it. I know it's good. In playwriting, you never know if anything you do is good. Um, but they're also very similar. So I, I'm constantly in both areas looking for analogies. In fact, analogical reasoning is kind of the heart of everything in creativity. And so most people think math is very cut and dried. It's just about numbers and stuff. But all of the great advances in math come from people seeing analogies between things that don't seem to be connected. And when you're trained in mathematics, you see at a very deep level how things are connected, even though they look very different. You, you, you learn to abstract, to peel away the superficial differences and see that these are exactly the same thing if I look at them at a deep enough level. So I'll give you one simple example. A triangle and a circle 
look very different in geometry because the triangle has points and straight edges. But if you only care about whether you can distort one into the other, like can you turn that into another? Like if it's a virus attacking a cell, its exact configuration doesn't matter. It's what you can pull it or stretch it into. It actually depends. It actually determines how the virus will attack the cell. So you don't care if the virus is shaped like that or like that. And then if you ignore those superficial features, you get a whole new branch of math called topology, where you're only looking at much more abstract things where a circle and triangle are the same to you. You don't care about those differences as long as you can stretch and pull one and the other. So, you know, in mathematics, the beautiful thing is you learn to see things that way. You learn to ignore all the superficial things. And, and when you see the deep connection, then you often get these really deep theories uh, that unify whole areas of science or economics or anything that you couldn't see if you didn't learn to see under the surface of things. That's a really powerful example for me, especially as I'm thinking about it, because I do tend to think topologically. I think that's kind of how I yeah. learned geometry and then, you know, figured out parts of math anyway. Right. But uh, uh, and certainly relevant, I guess, to the whole you know COVID vaccine problem again, because, yeah. you know, as I understand, a lot of the medical treatments are based on understanding protein folding and all of the combinations yeah, and right. permutations that's right in the none, way of that, proteins fold. none of that would exist none of that science would exist if, if in the 1800s or even before people hadn't started saying well what, what's really what's really common to these structures another great example is a coffee cup right you've got the, the main part and a handle if this is made of plasticine you could you could push that cup in and make it into a donut. You could push the cup until it becomes a donut. So a coffee cup and a donut, from the point of view of topologists, are the same. They've both got one hole in the handle hole. You might think, oh, that's really trivial. But actually, that's so much physics and mathematics comes out of how many holes a surface has. Massive amounts of math and physics just come out of that question. How do I recognize when two surfaces are the same or different fundamentally? Yeah, that, that's really interesting, actually. And I've, I've heard explanations about that that are quite mind-blowing, actually. And, and, you know, the analogy example, you know, the, the whole idea of giving analogies, I think, is I learned that way as well. And I, I think, you know, maybe what you're talking about is everybody kind of has that ability. Yeah. Um, you know, some of my favorite math heroes are the ones that didn't really, like me, didn't really have math training, like Srinivasa Ramanujan, yeah. uh, Pierre de Fermat. I mean, and they came up with great stuff. And I guess, you know, one of the things that you have claimed that may be somewhat more controversial is the idea that everybody has the ability to progress at the same rate in math. Yeah, so that's a complicated claim. What I mean is that... Um, so, so we had a teacher once that took a very average class where there are kids as low as the ninth percentile coming into grade five, which would mean there'd be about three grades below grade level. A year later, the lowest mark was in the 95th percentile. Now, not all those kids were doing exactly the same thing. She had to keep creating bonus questions for the faster kids, but even the faster kids were doing better. Like the highest kid was in the 75th percentile before she used jump. Year later, they're in the 98th percentile. So it's not like you have to hold anyone back. Everybody goes further together. It doesn't mean they're going to do exactly the same thing. I tell kids I'm a really slow mathematician. I, I used to compare myself to other students and think I'm really dumb because I can't work as fast as them. But I'm I'm creative and I persevere. And so I've, I've been able to get results in mathematics. So I'm not saying everyone will be exactly the same. I'm saying there's a there's a minimal standard you could have that's way higher than even maybe for our highest kids that we have now that everyone could meet, almost everyone. Like I've taught some very severely learned disabled kids. The majority of them could really progress, but some, I, you know, I, it was beyond me. Maybe there are other methods of teaching them, but I think the vast majority of people could at least take courses in math at university, enjoy it and so on, and maybe even go further. Um, I don't know exactly, but I, I know there's a much higher standard than we have now, even for strong students that I think almost everyone could meet if they were taught well, especially the earlier they start, you start the better. And that's not because of, like, even adults can catch up. It's just 
you don't have time to catch kids up if they've fallen so far behind. It makes me actually think way back 2,400 years ago when Plato wrote that famous scene with Socrates in the Mino, where Socrates takes the uneducated slave and uh, asks him questions about the perimeter and area of a square and then multiple squares and elicits all of this knowledge that is there, but it just, maybe it's a question of asking the right questions or, or just, yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because um, there's a, I mentioned this article in my book, this study, I think it was about six years ago where neurologists did brain scans of mathematicians solving problems and, and ordinary people. And they found that mathematicians tend to use a very primitive part of the brain that has the same sense of space and number that kindergarten kids do. And I could have told you that before the study, because because I struggled in math, I don't feel I understand anything unless I can reduce it to that level. Like, I can literally teach a person calculus, starting with count on your fingers, group objects into sets, things like, like I did with long division. And I don't really feel I understand the math unless I can do that. So. When you're talking about, you know, Socrates being able to elicit and and have this uneducated person figure out all these things, that's a great promise of math. It, it's you can build anyone up from very very simple principles to the until they understand things very deeply. The only thing you have to add to that is time. You have to give them enough time because we didn't evolve to learn a lot of math. Like it's a cultural creation. I forgot everything I learned in grad school. It's gone. I have to go back and do classes. You have to build in practice and a chance to consolidate and build retrieval networks in your brain so you can actually remember this stuff. That's where the time comes in. It's not because the math is inaccessible to people. They just need a lot of practice to consolidate. And they're not getting that practice and they're not getting taught efficiently. So they're wasting so much time because they're constantly being pushed outside their zone of productive struggle or this, that Goldilocks zone. And, and you give some great examples in All Things Being Equal of just some basic statements. And it, as I read them, it I had several aha moments myself, you know, like when you were talking about the presentation, I think that you gave to a teacher's conference about how to, uh, that one was about uh, div yeah, dividing by dividing by fractions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that is one thing that, you know, intuitively I was trying to explain it to myself before I read it, but then the way you explain it, it just makes it kind of obvious. Yeah. It's a beautiful example, too. Like, why do you flip and multiply when you divide by a fraction? Because you can show teachers in 10 or 15 minutes with a chocolate bar. They understand it. And then teachers say, how come we don't know this? Like, it's, it's so trivial. Even right down to, like, people don't even know what the remainder means. When you divide a fraction by a whole number, you often get, uh, sorry, whole number by a fraction, you often get a fractional remainder. People don't even know what that means. But... In half an hour, you can have anyone deduce all of that themselves just by asking the right question. Right down to the foundation, we can't really go much deeper. Yeah. And that can take half an hour to an hour. And the ambiguities, too, I think in some of the questions you had that great example of some kids don't understand six divided by two. You know, we would understand yes. intuitively it's the answer is three. But you know, as you say, they, they can interpret the question differently and still their answer is not incorrect. You know, taking three sets of two as opposed to two sets of three. Yeah, that, that's kind of surprising to people, to most adults. I'll, I'll say, suppose you have six sticks or six lines and I say divide six by two. What do you do? Half the audience will put it into groups of size two. The other half will make two groups. That Six divided by two, the two is ambiguous. It could be the size of the groups or the number of groups. Most people aren't even aware of that when they're teaching them out. They'll give word problems where the two means something completely different, and kids never get any guidance in recognizing that ambiguity. That's fascinating. Uh, you've also written about, uh, I guess, how lack of knowledge of math or lack of understanding of it leads to great inequalities. And I'm just wondering if you could expand on that and and you know try to explain how leveling the playing field i guess in terms of yeah. math knowledge is will be helpful to society as a whole well that's another complicated question but i'll just give you a couple uh, indications of why i think that so one is there's i mentioned in the book there's some longitudinal studies now that suggest for young kids math 
seems to predict later success at school more strongly than reading. And I think there may be several reasons for that. One is because in reading, there's so much, um, you know, importance placed on reading. Kids get so much support. You, you know, you, you have to read a sign as you're walking down the street. You, people just have to learn to read. And so we make sure that happens at some level. But reading is way harder than that. It's like a thousand times. It's amazing that we've learned to read. So how can we completely? So I think what why math is such a strong predictor. One of the reasons is because if you if you do fall behind in math, you're pretty much done in math. You're not likely to catch up unless your parents can hire a tutor. And and so that's why I think math becomes a kind of gateway for kids often. Um, also, I think it's a strong predictor because we were involved in a randomized controlled trial in the second year of the, the study. Um, jump students did significantly better in reading than the control group, even though there was no difference between the reading programs. And they controlled for everything, like it was a really rigorous study. And the researchers experiment might have been because of the math. And, you know, when kids learn to, to do math, they learn to stay on task, to see patterns, to make inferences, to even hold conditional statements in their head, like, if I see this, I'm going to do this. The training they get there spills over in every other subject, your ability to think in any subject. So that's another reason why I think math is really critical. It should be a right of every kid to develop that side of the brain, that part of the brain. And then there's other studies showing the kind of career you're going to have, the kind of job. It depends on your level of, even how your finances work out, um, are going to depend on the level of math you have. And so that's one reason why it's like a matter of social justice that every child should be able to realize their potential in math. But there's a deeper reason. Uh, you know, I've seen kids cheer for math. I've seen behavioral students ask to stay for recess. Kids have the sense of wonder and curiosity. They love solving problems, making connections, seeing patterns. And it should be a right of them to keep that, a right for kids to keep that sense of wonder alive and that sense of curiosity. And math is one of the key areas where kids can develop this love of learning and this, this sense of the beauty of the world, the wondrous nature of the world. Sitting at their desks, like they can roam the universe and understand stars and planets and microbes, the mathematics of those things sitting at their desk. There's some beautiful philosophy expressed in your book when you said, the hidden beauty of the world is accessible to anyone who can think. We don't have to compete or fight with each other to earn our share of this precious resource. If adults could see this beauty clearly behind the fog of fear and confusion that people tend to feel when they learn math, they would want every child to see it too. Yeah. And once yeah. you've experienced that, it's like walking in a beautiful park. Nobody has to pay me to do math, just as no one has to pay me to go to a beautiful landscape. And we don't understand the invisible beauty of work because we've never experienced it. Yeah. You know, and the way it's taught, yeah. the way math is taught. Yeah, and, and as you said earlier, certainly a better understanding of math and probability and risk would also lead to presumably less disagreements among people in things like COVID vaccines and climate change and all of that. So, Yeah, or at least more civil disagreements, because there's yeah. still a lot of disagreement in the sciences, but at least there's means for people to talk about these things and to weigh possibilities and, and truth. Yeah, just agreeing on the basic facts is we need to get to that point. So yeah. um, have you seen studies indicating like is knowledge or proficiency with math a predictor of a person's economic outcomes? Yeah, it is a strong predictor of, of your economic outcome. Like one study like someone told me about um, if there's a married couple and one of the partners knows math, well, they're going to be way better off financially than couples where neither knows. So there's just study after study suggesting that the better your outcomes in math, probably the better off you're going to be. You'll have more choices for your jobs and things like that. You know, I, I think it's no accident that some of the most um, game-changing and successful companies now, the, the multi-billion dollar companies are founded by engineers or people who have a background in math or science. They're not just traditional business people. It just shows the power of being able to think your way through problems like that and, and see where the world's going. Yeah, and I think math is probably foundational necessity, really, for the study of pretty much any science. Yeah, like um, 
I don't agree with Elon Musk's politics because I'm much more progressive, but definitely the car industry wouldn't have moved as quickly to electric cars if it hadn't been for Tesla. And when I started reading about Tesla, it just seemed obvious to me. Batteries are a technology. Their price is going to come down like every other technology quickly as compared to the internal combustion engine, which reached kind of the maximum efficiency. So batteries are going to win. Like, they're just going to win. There's no question. And that's what Musk saw just doing the math, the math and allowed him to, that just seemed so obvious if you know any math, and allowed him to hammer massive companies that are now struggling to catch up. And he claims that, you know, any problem he looks at, he'll just go down to first principles and look at the math. Uh, I think it, it's a very powerful way to to understand the world and, and certainly to create new businesses. Yeah, and that's a, that's an example that's very clearly having a huge transformative effect. Yeah, no, it's been so great learning about all of this and, you know, this difference in approach. And so I'm just wondering with Jump Math, which I guess you founded as a charity in 2002, how do you gauge its results and what does the future hold for its mission? So um, there's several ways we gauge the results. The kind of first line of feedback is, if I can't go into a classroom and demonstrate this, then it's not, you know, we shouldn't be producing these lessons. Or if the teachers we're working with are telling us it's not working. So we're constantly in the field, in classrooms, observing, working with teachers, getting feedback. Even this year, we're running some pilots where we've made Lots of improvements, even in pacing guides, because we found teachers didn't have enough time to get through materials, and, and they also couldn't spend all the time making the selections, because you have to figure out if I leave this lesson, how is it going to impact other lessons? So that's one area we're just constantly getting feedback and trying to improve things. Secondly, we're, we've been involved in study after study, either with universities or or school boards, or even a randomized controlled trial that was run by a cognitive scientist from SickKids Hospital and the University of Toronto. So we think that, you know, it's our duty as a charity to make sure we're always doing these studies. Then the third way is, um, are we aligned with the science of learning? And I, I talked about that earlier. I think we're well aligned and in ways that people don't even understand. They're not even aware of the science often. And we have some evidence there because a lot of cognitive scientists or psychologists are big supporters of JUMP. They've all uh, written testimonials, like there's one on the back of my book from one of my heroes, Daniel Willingham. Or they've even done research with us or helped us in some way. So that's really gratifying to know we have that support from the research community. But we're always, I'm always unhappy. Like I, the future of JUMP is can we keep getting better? make it easier for the average teacher to get the kind of results I was talking about earlier. And we don't care as a charity if everyone uses JUMP, but we'd like to raise the standards, raise the bar to the point where everybody has to meet that standard. There's pressure on any resource that's produced to be in line with the science of learning and to actually elicit the full potential of kids and, and teachers. So that's really our long-term mission. And that's always eternally frustrating. It always feels like one step forward, two steps back. With the, in, in a system that's often swept by fads, it doesn't put a lot of um, weight on evidence, solid evidence. So we're even trying to run now to create these model schools or demonstrations where every teacher really embraces these principles and the science of learning. And, and we can show the, the real impact of that. We're starting to see that in some of our pilots. But it's a long, long, hard road to get there. Yeah, I can imagine. And I guess um, different jurisdictions, both you know across Canada and in the world, have different standards for education and different parameters, I guess, which is also yeah. no doubt a problem. But That makes it hard. Every province, there's been more fragmentation, more and more provinces and states adopting their own standards. And they're, they're all the same, but they just shift almost all, you know, with some differences. Curricula everywhere are very similar. It just depends on what grade you teach a topic at. And so that makes it very difficult for us. And any company that produces resources for schools, you have to spend all this money redoing the materials because they moved a topic from one grade to another. 
So one of our big pushes now is to digitize the whole program, all our intellectual property, so it makes it way easier for us to create new versions for different stakeholders too. Like we're we're going to be producing materials for upskilling youth, for parents, and so on. So we're really excited about getting things into a content management system where we can change things more easily. Well, that's great news. I think I can imagine that would be a huge benefit. Yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, does Jump have the resources if a teacher's particularly interested in its methods or a school's interested and they approach Jump? I mean, do you have the resources to respond to that or is that a problem? Well, most schools will just pay for the resources because they have money for resources. So that's one of the ways we sustain ourselves as a charity. We give massive discounts sometimes for well not massive but like even 50 percent off sometimes for pilots if schools will stick with the program and, and get proper training we'll try and have an we'll work on our plan for improving their test results on provincial tests for instance like if, if schools are willing to engage with us we will try and make it affordable for them um, and we also have a book fund where we can even give the program away to schools that really can't afford it we work within a lot of remote communities, indigenous communities, and so on. We've, we've given away a lot of materials and training, especially. If teachers are willing to work with us, we'll, we'll do anything we can to support them. Well, that's great to hear. And, and I think anybody supporting Jump Math as a charity, I, I think, would be happy to hear that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, and and it's such an important mission, as, as you said. Um, I want to maybe just wind up on a, creative note you know because you are a playwright and maybe for those people who say well i don't need to learn math because i teach english or i write plays or i paint or maybe just explain just you know the connection i guess of of math to the artistic pursuits yeah i mean most of my ideas for plays come either from philosophy or mathematics or science you know in every age there are there are game-changing discoveries that, that even change the way we think about ourselves or you know even our consciousness there's, there's discoveries about the brain that that are absolutely mysterious about the ways our brains work and so on um, and so i find those are there are some writers I know who can just sit down in front of a piece of paper and stuff pours out of them i i wish i was that writer but I have to take lots of notes, listen to conversations, uh, read articles. I have to stoke my imagination all the time. I, I find philosophy, science, science fiction are, for me, fantastic ways to do that. So I think if, you're, if you don't embrace your mathematical and scientific talents or interests, I think you're, you're leaving out half of your potential experience you could have of the world. And... Also, I learned in math, I think, to see analogies and patterns that really serves me well in, in all the writing I'm doing. It kind of, the arts and sciences feed off each other for me. I'm constantly learning how to see, see the structure of things or analogies in both areas. And my excitement sort of keeps my imagination alive. Yeah, I think the analogies, uh, again, that I learned so much by that and certainly the examples you gave in your book, I think, really helped to give me some very helpful analogies to understand some very basic principles, which I thought I understood before, but now I yeah. just have a different understanding. So, it, it also, like, I wrote this article once almost as a joke, but it got published in the Philosophy Journal. Artists obsess over how long their work is going to last and how many people see it or engage with it. And so I started thinking, you know, do we really know what we want? when we're looking for immortality in that way, uh, especially given all these new ideas coming out of science and math. So I wrote this article to show, you know, other cultures in the past, they didn't really worry about how long something lasted. It was more about what immediate impact it had on your communities, or you'd want to read it, leave a good reputation or something, but they didn't care if it lasted indefinitely in Newtonian time. It's just you, you would want to have an impact on the community. And so we've lost that. And now we've become, we, we think of a playwright was very successful in their day. They reached tens of thousands of people, but their work is forgotten. We think of them as a failure now uh, because it didn't last in time. 
even though they had this enormous rippling effect. So if you think of the theory of relativity, suppose you paint a painting and you put it on a rocket ship and send it at near light speed somewhere, you know, and then you come back, how long, and, and the painting only exists two years in rocket ship time, but 10,000 years in Earth time, how long did it last? How long has it been around for? Or there's even worse paradoxes around infinity. It turns out there's different levels of infinity. And so if you lived in a quantum branching universe, you'd actually have a higher immortality if you care about how many, how, you know, what kind of order of infinity your work has lasted for. So there's all these weird ideas out of math and sciences where it's clear we don't even know what we're wishing for when we wish to be immortal. So uh, that kind of relieved me of a lot of angst because I realized we, we don't even understand what we want when we want to be immortal. So why not just focus on my immediate impact? But math and philosophy and science will allow you to sort of think about those things. That's really fascinating, that whole temporal dimension of it and kind of those connections between cause and effect over such a long period yeah. of time, which are yeah. hard hard to predict. So again, yeah, exactly. it's it's all about probabilities, I guess. And uh, yeah, well, listen, John, it's been so great talking to you and learning about your history and your great initiative with Jump Math. And, you know, we wish it every success and, you know, we'd love to follow up with you. So uh, I want to great. thank you for your time and all you give to this very important area. Thanks so much. And thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you. Our thanks go to today's guest and to you for listening to the Quantum Feedback Loop. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out The Quantum Record at thequantumrecord.com. The Quantum Record is a monthly journal of philosophy, science, technology, and time, where you'll find the latest developments in our rapidly evolving technological world.